This is Stop Scrolling, a podcast about our everyday interactions with technology. My name is John Yan. And I'm Brian Ng. Join us as we discuss how emerging technologies are changing the way humans act, behave, and think. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Stop Scrolling. So, I know that during this pandemic, we haven't been posting our episodes regularly. But that's okay, because starting now, starting today, Brian and I have decided to post a new episode every two weeks. So, you guys will be hearing from us more often in the upcoming weeks. We will have more announcements toward the end of this episode, but first, Let's talk about the show today. Today, we have Jennifer West on the show with us. Jennifer is a certified piano teacher as well as an elementary school teacher. But most importantly, for the purpose of the podcast today, she is the founder of Muse West Concerts. She talks about how performance arts has been impacted by COVID 19 and how the industry is adapting to this changing landscape. With the help of technology. So, without further ado, here's our chat with Jennifer West.、Um, we're very happy to have Jennifer West today on the show.、Uh, Jennifer's been a friend of mine for a couple years, and、uh, we're really happy to get to talk to her about the current state of performing arts. Hi, John. Hi, Brian. Thank you so much for having me today. It's a pleasure to join you for this conversation. So, Jennifer,、um, For our listeners, could you tell them a little bit about yourself and what you do right now? Yes, I am a grade five teacher and I teach piano. And on the side, <laughs> I'm the artistic director of Muse West Concerts, which is a classical and jazz、uh, music festival and concert series here on the West Coast that has been here since November 2013. We just celebrated our seventh anniversary. I'm interested. How did you、uh, come about starting that? I had a friend who wanted to come to Vancouver and perform a recital. And I was discussing with this friend oh, this sounds like a great idea. You should come perform. And this friend reminded me that, well, it's not that easy. The musician has to be formally invited, there has to be a flight paid for,、um, tickets sold, venue. Everything arranged. So I thought, well, I actually think I could do that job and I think I would be okay at it. So I said to my friend, yeah, sure, I'll get this organized for you. And it was a huge success the first concert.、Um, beginner's luck. <laughs> and after that,、um, the rest is kind of history. And we've been a nonprofit for about a year and a half. So After six years of doing this with the help of volunteers, friends, and some members of the community,、uh, we now have an official board of directors and are a registered business and nonprofit in British Columbia. So、uh, things are much more official. Wow, that sounds like quite the journey.、Um, you've been through a lot, and you've actually, it sounds like you're doing really well、um, with what you're doing. 
And I wonder. Thanks. <laughs> I wonder, um, because how how did it work before uh, this whole COVID pandemic uh, happened? Yeah, we. The extent of our use of technology before COVID was social media to post a twenty-second clip of a rehearsal, social media to post a picture. And we would have a recording engineer um, and sometimes rare occasion, a videographer to archive our performances. And since COVID, um, we have a podcast of season one, which has 13 episodes already to be released slowly over the next year. And we also have gone completely online for our recitals. We had one live recital in September that sold out in 70 hours because there were limited seats. So they went very quickly. But now we really are not allowed to meet anybody in person except our two chosen bubble people and go to work and come home. So... We have planned a live concert for January 30th, and we are holding with abated breath to see if we will have an audience, but we have plans to record it. So um, life for us has radically changed, and it has been fun, wild, and a great learning opportunity. Wow, yeah. Um, we just want to congratulate you on releasing the podcast. Um, yeah, hop on the podcasting train. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's right. Yeah. The podcast train and yours is fantastic as well. Um, so thank you. I really appreciate the invitation today. Right. Um, so you talked a little bit about uh, inviting performers to join uh, Muse West for concerts. Before COVID, you had to arrange for the flights, the hotels. Um, I, I guess arrange for you know all the other accommodations but has it been easier now to you know like get performers to come on to virtual shows it actually has been a bit easier um because what i can do is say to a performer in new york go to your favorite recording studio get me the video by this date i'll premiere your video and you get this percentage of tickets um or you get this percentage of donations. It's actually become, yeah, it's like a, more of an open door because mm -hmm. before to be restricted by flights and hotel or find a homestay, find accommodation, this is not easy. So to be able to avoid some of those extra costs has meant that we can, um, we can have performers from all over the United States and Canada um, we had a flute recital from London. We had a piano recital from Hong Kong. Aristo, if you're listening, we really enjoyed your recital. <laughs> um, my good buddy Aristo Sham. And we also have, coming up in February, a virtual concert of a Baroque ensemble from Amsterdam, filmed in a loft apartment overlooking a canal in Amsterdam. So I feel like I'm actually kind of excited. Um, and I really enjoy being able to watch these performances in pajama pants <laughs> and not have to get dressed up to go 
to concert venue and to meet people on Zoom after and have an audience that's all over the world. It's been fun. Right. So let's talk a little bit about that um, from the end of uh, organizing these concerts, right? Like, so before you had to make sure tickets were selling, uh, that like seats were filled at, you know, the auditorium or at a church, but now it's, it's all virtual. So has the demand been higher or lower? If, if you could tell us a little bit about that. The demand has been rather medium, I would say. Um, so for some of our concerts, um, we've seen individual donors be extremely generous. They've, um, they've said, I want to support this person's concert, and they give a very generous uh, sum of money. So most musicians right now understand that we can't guarantee anything right now. Some people still have a guaranteed fee, so then we have to work within a framework of, okay, how many people are going to watch online? And if we've met sort of our financial target, we make the video public just to get more views to increase our audience. We don't do that until the show is officially over, and we don't always do that. So some of our concerts are still hidden unless people bought the ticket for it, and then they will permanently have the link on YouTube. Um, We've experimented with different things. Um, Facebook does not allow you to monetize a video so or to have a hidden link. Facebook Live is public to everybody, so there's no way to gatekeep. But with YouTube, there is, um, through private or unlisted. So that's what we've been using. We've been using unlisted and private YouTube links. Or if the musician says, I just want people to enjoy it, we make it public. So that's been probably one of the best formats. Another format that a lot of concert series are using is called Vimeo. Um, And the video quality on Vimeo is fantastic, but it's not free. (laughs) YouTube's free, so we're sticking with YouTube. So it sounds like it's a a big change for both, um, or actually all parties. So for yourself as an organizer, for the audience um, watching it on YouTube or um, live, and for the performers as well. Um, what have you noticed that the performers the the new changes? How have I noticed how the performers respond to the changes? Yeah, that's a fantastic question because some performers have responded so well and have given us incredibly beautiful virtual recitals that are professionally recorded professionally rendered. Um, Shout out to my friend Reed Tetzloff, who gave us one of the finest recitals we've had, um, all virtual, uh, and it rivaled any of our live recitals. It was so crystal clear, the sound and video, and just the person recording him knew exactly what he was doing. It was really good. So some musicians are not afraid of the camera, and they feel the energy of the performance, even without having bodies in the room to give back. And some performers, it took them a while to warm up to it. Um, But others are still a bit resistant, but the vast majority understand completely right now that um, the quality of recordings is very high, the quality of technology is very high, so that 
um, they feel comfortable producing their work in this way. And the first question they have is, like, do you want 1080 or 4K video? <laughs> so they're, they're becoming a little more tech savvy, and they know that whatever they put out there has to be super high quality. So it depends on their personalities. I tend to hire or work with musicians who already, no matter what the setting, would be flexible, friendly, and outgoing. So I haven't seen too many changes, and the people that were initially resistant and thought this would be over in five months now know that, well, this is it. Mm -hmm. So come along for the ride. Yeah. That's interesting. Um, I just had a question pop up in my mind where as as musicians, we all know that we're perfectionists. So for these to be recordings, right, like previously recorded, does that make the work, you know, workload heavier for musicians? Because if they mess up in the recording, they could just retake and keep on retaking until maybe one day they get a they get a perfect version. But does that, you know, like would they still publish one that they're not really happy with or like what's your what's your experience with that never (laughs) (laughs) um they're actually more picky um and i've had multiple people no shout outs this time because those are anonymous (laughs) i've had maybe several three or four musicians say to me up to a week later you know Jen, I was thinking about this one spot in the second movement, and I hate my playing there. Please take it down. And, of course, I instantly delete it because it's their property. Um, You know, we kind of have a shared property arrangement where, you know, we can distribute it for them. But if someone's not comfortable with their playing, I would never keep it up for them. But it is a lot of work for some of them. Um... One of my friends in New York is sending me weekly videos where he is testing out new microphones at home because he wants to record at home. And he's trying these things out, and he's getting closer and closer to the sound that he wants. And he's not in a rush. It's just trying every week, and um, it is more work for them to find a studio that's open or a rehearsal space that's open right now. But um, they are missing people bodies giving them energy literally physically and emotionally giving them that energy and that warmth Uh, so it is extra work to make a recording passionate but most of them seem to be rising to the challenge and to have the performances be actually live live requires such technology to get anything close to the high quality video and audio that most people are sending us pre-recorded videos, and it works great. It's very little stress. Upload, schedule, enjoy with a glass of wine. <laughs> and you mentioned that um, I guess there's a big difference because it lacks the energy from the audience. I think that's that's one of the things that popped up in my as a career, um, I guess as a performer myself, I'm not a musician, so I am not as familiar with it. But I wonder um, how that would affect the performer, and um, like if it, if this is the future of um, perform- performing arts, at least for the near future. I wonder, um, like, what that would take away from um, 
the performing arts? It takes away the morale. <laughs> and it takes away a little bit the sense of community. You don't know who's listening on the other end. So that's why I, almost to the point of being obnoxious, when we're having our YouTube premieres, I, I message in the live scrolling chat as it's premiering, where is everybody joining us from? Let's clap after the Beethoven. You know, I am trying really hard to get people to engage. Um, but then I kind of got thinking about that. Um, and one of our board members mentioned to me, you know, Jen, let people just enjoy the concert. Maybe they don't want to talk. And I thought, that's a good point. Because when I'm watching these, sometimes I'll get a bit chatty with other concert series if I'm watching a premiere with some friends I'll be like hey I see you it's so good to see you you know but I think that yeah they're missing applause they're missing waiting backstage they're missing intermission where they get to think about it and they're missing meeting people backstage after who compliment them and give them flowers um, which just gave me a really nice idea of what I'm going to do after each virtual concert. <laughs> People are going to get some deliveries. Um, I don't know why we hadn't thought of that before. But I think that that is missing. It's the aspect of community. The playing is still astounding. There's some really, really good virtual performances out there. Um, from legendary performers to newer performers, there's, there's some great stuff. And they're missing that audience contact. I think when you mentioned the community part, that's, that's huge. That's the reason I go to concerts, I think. Um, whether it be classical music or even just like, you know, pop or whatever, like, you know, uh, more modern concerts where it's like, you know, everyone's really excited and everyone is chatting or whatever it is. But different concerts used to have its sort of vibe or you used to have like um etiquettes to it right like classical music you kind of stay silent until the the break like not the end of a piece maybe like in the middle and then people will like cough or you know like shuffle in their seats um and then wait till the end before they clap right um whereas like you know pop music concerts were always like maybe singing along or like dancing stuff like that and there's that interaction there's that community um so is there is there a possibility where we can leverage technology and build in that sense of involvement from the audience, right? Because right now, yesterday, um, I was watching this uh, virtual concert. And yeah, thanks thanks to Jennifer for uh, letting me use her VSO account. <clears throat> I was mm-hmm. just watching and I saw I saw my teacher on the screen performing and it was I was like excited to see him perform, but like obviously he doesn't know I'm watching. <laughs> and um it, it just seems that there's a disconnection, right? There's no intermission where maybe I could go talk to him and say, oh, you know, that Sibelius was really great and then talk to him about that part where they played. Maybe I could do that through iMessage when I'm watching, but that feels like I'm distracted, right? Like where sometimes during the concert, I have to hold a thought and wait for maybe the end of the concert to talk to people about it. But now I, I'm just picking up my phone and talking to someone and I don't know, it doesn't, the, the etiquette and the the traditional way of doing things different now. It has completely changed how we listen. 
And I feel like how I've leveraged technology a bit is we have a Zoom reception after every recital. So we have a post-concert Zoom drink or coffee if it's, <laughs> if it's an afternoon recital. Um, we have coffee. Um, if it's an evening recital, we have, we have wine. But um, that has been an important facet because people show up that the musician hasn't seen in three years. Mm. And they've been surprised and it's been cute. Um, so that has been a decent way to build community for us. And another way that we've leveraged the technology is to have a pre-concert podcast interview with the, with the musician. So to have them interviewed, people get to see them speak, hear them speak, and see their face on video. And another way that I've seen is um, the Toronto Summer Music Festival. Shout out to my inspiration and mentor and friend, Jonathan Crow, um, who I just... The work he did at Toronto Summer Festival this year was astounding, and the technical team that they had um, was beautifully produced videos. But what they did is they had everybody on Vimeo chatting, and it was super talkative. It was like people were listening, but they were more chatting and typing. And it was fun. It was There were jokes. There were emojis it, it was awesome and yes I think that there would be people of a purist stance who might say we missed the listening experience and we were distracted but at least I got to chat with my friends while I heard them play and one thing I've been thinking about is I just subscribed to the Orchestre Symphonique de Montréal and they have four sections to their subscription per year. And I bought section, I think it's section two already. And I got to see my friend Andrew, who's the concert master, play in Place des Arts, in the Maison Symphonique. And I got to see and hear him. And I haven't heard him play for two years. And I haven't seen him play with the Orchestre Symphonique live ever, other than quick clips on CBC. And you know, I, I sent him a WhatsApp and I was like, nice solo in the Strauss. And he's like, oh, you subscribed. And, you know, that's very special to me. And some of these subscriptions are not inexpensive. But if you're following health regulations and you're staying home, I, I see it as an opportunity to enjoy things that I've always wanted to do. I've always wanted to hear the OSM live. And to attend the Festival de Bach in Montreal. I have nine virtual concerts that I'm going to listen to. I have a week to listen to them, and I can listen on my own time. And I've been loving it. Wow. It sounds like technology, despite what's happening and despite um, all the challenges that it, you face as, I guess, a performing arts or uh, music industry concerts, um, it sounds like it's able to connect people um, and I guess distance is no longer an issue because you can see your friend uh, playing while you're at home uh, when like in normal times you would actually have to travel all the way there uh, in order to see them. Mm -hmm. 
And I just hope that so many organizations consider budgeting for this once the vaccine has returned us to non-emergency health. I would happily pay to see my friends in the OSM. I'd happily pay to watch the LA Phil. Right, John? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the concert hall itself is, is pretty uh, amazing. I, I would want to go up there too, but online yes. would uh, you know, give me a second avenue, second option. And, and you know, now that I'm, I've been to concerts at Walt Disney Hall in Los Angeles twice. I am very fortunate to have been to a LA Chamber Orchestra concert at Royce Hall at UCLA and um, to have attended student recitals at University of Southern California. And, you know, I think another thing that's possibly missing is the actual physical venue. Because, of course, you know, the LA Phil and Walt Disney Hall have the best tech team. They would have 10 cameras, 35 microphones, um, you know, five switchboards and you know, that's $200,000 per performance to produce. As should for a top-tier orchestra in the United States, you know, um, that they should be doing that. But it's not the same as looking for your ticket, walking up the stairs, finding your seat. Um, and I won't forget the first chord that I heard of the L.A. Phil. It was um, Dvorak's Carnival Overture, and it was March 2017. And my heart skipped a beat because I hadn't heard sound like that from an orchestra before. So um, that's missing. And our friends in opera are really hurting because they, you know, they're stigmatized with singing, emitting, um, you know, your breath and vapors um, when actually we don't have that much research that should demonize singing. So that's been hard. It's been really hard to watch opera um, struggle. And, you know, our options for opera are pre-recorded smaller performances that have a smaller cast. Um, but the cost of doing that without people buying tickets is so prohibitive that, um, I'm, yeah, I very much worry about opera. But I'm not as worried about symphonies or chamber music. I think you mentioned... Um a couple times about I guess the technology that's required or the equipment that's required um, yeah. like the big orchestras have a bunch of equipment uh, super expensive and um, and I guess individual performers I guess it would be cost prohibitive if they don't have the the mic the setup the uh, maybe sound room for them to record in well Shout out to my friend Timothy Chewy, who is um, producing incredible videos on his own, start to finish. He cuts the audio, cuts the video, edits, um, publishes, promotes all of his content on his own. Um, and so some musicians are not able to do this. This is a very specific skill, and it takes patience, and it takes being willing to learn about it. But, it, you know, I think a lot of recording engineers and videographers right now are very understanding. And they like to make time to slot people into their studio. So 
I think that musicians probably would have to be very careful with their budgets right now. Um, but I know a lot of my friends are learning video editing. Uh, and I know a lot of my friends are playing around with microphones. So what a cool skill to have that will pay off in the future. Because if you can record yourself and avoid going to a studio, initial cost to buy the mic, buy the camera is expensive, but it will pay itself off later. So it's been interesting to see who's experimenting and who just says, oh, hire someone for me. This is not my bag. And fair enough, because, for example, McGill University has a Master's of Music in Sound Recording. And you have to be a musician. Uh, you have to have a Bachelor of Performance or Music Theory or Composition. And then you do two intensive years of sound recording. And that's that shows you the level of precision that's out there. And we have some very talented teams in Vancouver too. And the cost of these videos, like <laughs> I asked around and I asked for a quote and they did a 30 minute video for another organization. And they said, you have a smaller budget. So for you, 5,000. And I said, thank you for recognizing our budget size. I will have to get back to you. I haven't written back because I don't know what to say that won't embarrass us. <laughs> but it just gives you an idea of the investment. And I think that um, for all the people at the back listening at home, <laughs> please consider that these don't magically appear. Um, I have been behind the scenes watching these get filmed. I've been behind the scenes watching these get live streamed with three cameras, two laptops, 20 cords, five microphones, and this doesn't magically come to your YouTube channel or your Vimeo. Please consider financially supporting so we can continue doing this work because it's most equally expensive. It's pricey. Especially if you want to do it very well. It gets really expensive. Right. So th this question is... Uh to Brian, but Jen, feel free to chime in as well. So as an audience, right? <laughs> like when you listen to music at home, um, Brian, would you consider like upgrading your current, you know, you know, microphone, not, not microphone, sorry, like headphone, earphones or whatever you listen through? Cause I don't know, like if we're, if these uh, organizations, orchestras, musicians are spending a lot of money on the recording side, what if like the audience doesn't hold up their side of the bargain and they use like a crappy speaker and the sound just goes to garbage, right? Like <laughs> that doesn't really, it's, it's not really efficient way of consuming music. So, um, Brian, I'll let you, let you answer that first. Yeah, that's a, that's a tough question. I would say I noticed a big difference between, um, my different laptop speakers. Um, so I have my, one laptop that has superior audio quality in terms of speakers uh, and I I always prefer that one uh, for watching videos listening to things um, when it comes to like earphones headphones for me I think like maybe priorities are a bit different I, I can't do with like really poor quality um, but once it reaches a certain threshold um, 
I personally can't hear a difference. Um, so I wouldn't opt for like super high quality, but at the same time, like I can't do with like the lowest quality um, audio. So I think there is, it probably depends on the audience, like um, the people who are watching concerts, listening to concerts. I feel like they might tend to spend a bit more just for the audio quality because that's what they're they're listening for um, music and they want to hear good music uh, and the um, it would really take away from the experience if you're like have poor speakers or pe poor earphones yeah but for myself I think the bar is a bit lower <laughs> I would love to add to that that this has been the bane of our existence as a customer service side of things. I can't tell you the number of emails or Facebook um, messages that have said, I can't hear well. Did you use headphones? <laughs> Did you use a laptop? Um, Did you turn your sound on? Or, my video hasn't started yet, and the concert started five minutes ago. Did you click refresh? I can't tell you. Um, and at first, I was extremely irritated. And I said, you know what, Jennifer? You just have to laugh about this, because if you take this to heart, you're going to go crazy. So I just started to laugh about these customer service requests. And I started, I have a, um, like a template email that I send with my favorite speakers and favorite headphones. I just send it to them and I say, here's the file again, please enjoy and maybe recommend. So 100% the listening experience is enhanced by your equipment. And like Brian said, the people that are subscribing to these, there's two types of people subscribing to online music right now, maybe three. Those of us in the industry those of us who have a partner or spouse or special friends in the ensembles um, and people that love music. And you do tend to find that musicians are audiophiles. So musicians tend to have at least one set of headphones that they would be very sad to lose. Um, I'm using the Bose um, quiet comfort noise canceling ones, pretty decent. Um, I know my friend Jeremy would send me Sennheisers and tell me to put these away, but that's okay. Um, you know, you'll also find that musicians tend to be picky about that kind of thing. I do think the general audience is just going to use whatever hack equipment they have at home. And that that has been some of their dissatisfaction with their listening experience. And... Um, we just have a caveat or warning in front of all of our tickets. Ticket Your optimal listening experience is with over-the-ear covered headphones or major speakers. But yeah, it's been a challenge to get people to like think about their listening experience at home. And again, you know, this all depends on people's disposable income because we're not talking about apps that are potentially free where you can do an in-app purchase to get special features um, but this is hardware that you have to shell out for so it's a bit different 
So looking looking to the future a little bit now that let's say、um, COVID goes on for a couple more months and <clears throat> more and more musicians、um, invest in really good recording hardware、um, like mics and then more and more audiences invest in their you know speakers or headphones. So you know everyone kind of just becomes content or satisfied with this online virtual experience. Then what happens like? Are we are we gonna go back to normal concerts now that everyone invested so much? Like you said, it's it's not cheap, right? Like once you put the money in the basket, you don't want to really say, oh, like I'm just gonna let it sit there and collect dust, and you know. So what,、mm-hmm. what's gonna happen after after COVID's over? I don't remember what it was like before. <laughs> I I have been to, I think. Between it was between March fifteenth and August thirtieth, I did not hear live music in person. I thought I was going to die. I made it. <laughs> um, the last concert, the last classical concert I heard before quarantine was um, March twelfth, the VSO.、Mm-hmm. At Christchurch Cathedral, and I said to the person I went with, I said, "This is the last time we're going to hear live classical music in 2020." I'm like, "It's in my bones. I feel it." And my friend said, "Yeah, you're probably right." So, what's going to happen? I don't think everyone is investing in these things. I think actually the opposite. I think people are burning out from being on their screen all day. I'm a teacher, so I'm at school in person. I'm not on my computer. I'm walking around a classroom, you know,、um, working in person. You know, kids are doing hands-on activities. I'm helping them and helping them with math. So I'm not glued to a computer or desk,、um, thankfully. But if I were, I would not be as willing to watch an online performance. So I think there will still be an appetite.、Um, people miss it. And people have now just accepted that this is awful, this is sad, and this is where we are.、Um, I do think that there will be some some hesitation to go back, both for health reasons and that people will have simply lost their impetus or motivation to leave the home. I think that a lot of people have gotten real comfy, and that. They're used to it. People have reduced their friend circles, both on purpose and organically. It's just happened. We've seen that the people we want to keep in touch with over this time are the people we've made an effort to talk to virtually. So, I think it will take us a while to adjust socially to the new norms,、um, and. I think it'll take probably two years to see a full return to fully attended concerts. You mentioned that、um, there were parts of going to a real concert that you can't really replicate or replace. People are burned out from、um, going on Zoom or like looking on the screen for so long,、um, and that there will be a transition period、uh, going back、um, to. Going to real concerts, so then, what do you see the role of、um, like digital concerts or live stream concerts or、um, 
what you transitioned into, how do you think that will work with um, real concerts in the future once um, in the post-COVID? That's a lovely question. And I love that question because it it's something that we've been thinking about. There are a few roles for digital concerts. Um, the Berlin Philharmonic has had a digital concert season for the last 10 years. So when COVID hit the Berlin Philharmonic, they were like, yeah, and? <laughs> this is, <laughs> okay, next. Nothing got canceled. Audience got refunded, but nothing got canceled. Um, musicians kept getting paid. Conductors got paid. Uh, people wore masks. They went in, they rehearsed, they played. Um, life was pretty much as normal. So I think organizations that are so reputable, like Academy of St. Martin in the Fields, Berlin Phil, Met Opera, these organizations will continue to have virtual things for us because these are the leaders of the arts in the Western European art world. But for something like Muse West concerts or our local colleagues and friends who are producing concerts, I could see this helping us promote out-of-town musicians because when they come here from somewhere else, if we live stream it, their friends back home can watch and pay for a virtual ticket. So I've been thinking, actually, why don't we just keep doing this? Because if this person's popular in their hometown, people will tune in. So I think that that's part of the role. Um, archival purposes, to hear a wonderful recording again. Um, but I have to admit, you're probably talking to someone who's quite passionate about listening to these things daily. Um, and someone who knows exactly how important it is to pay to watch these. Um, and, you know, I, I shared the VSO with John because, first of all, I know his teacher. I know his teacher's in the ensemble, and um, John has volunteered for our concerts before, and I'm really thankful for his invitation to this podcast. And um, I think that sometimes it's okay to share that content so that people get a taste of the hard work. So overall, I think that it could be a there could be something innovative there. We'll have to see if people keep it up. It's really expensive to do, though. <laughs> I wanted to give you credit because, um, honestly, like, I am not as, like, musically driven. So I've been to, like, a few orchestras, um, but that's about it. And it sounds like you've been doing a lot um, to replicate the experience or to even make the experience even better uh, with the podcast, with the like pre, um, pre-concert podcast or interview, um, testing out the chat component and try, trying to make it uh, interactive and the post-concert um, reception. So mm -hmm. it sounds like you're doing a lot, and um, I I wish you that, like that that will be successful in creating the experience that uh, you're trying to create and um, having audience get the experience that they want. Thank you so much for that very kind wish. Um, 
your audio listeners can't see the smile on my face, but uh, the recognition for that hard work uh, means a lot. And I can name five organizations that I think are doing a much better job than we are and who have inspired me. Um, the Oxford Leader Festival in particular has captured my heart completely. Um, leader refers to art song with piano and voice. And there's a festival in Oxford that just went above and beyond. Um, and they would do a tour of the building where it was being performed in. And these are like castles and special parlors and castles and um, beautiful venues. And before the music started, they had a beautiful video of Oxford, of the old buildings, and that helped with the sense of place and situating us in the venue. But thank you for those kind words. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. I think it's really well-deserved. <laughs> it's hard work, but it's rewarding. <laughs> yeah, I think um, to end it off, um, Jennifer, do you want to tell us a little bit more about Muse West? and um, the, the, the things that are going on with Muse West right now, maybe upcoming cons concerts or how our listeners, if you're interested, how they can um, listen to performances or have like that, you know, um, mm -hmm. join, in, join in the conversation. Yes. So you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And yes, we still have Twitter. It's awesome. <laughs> And our website is musewest.org, and it is in construction. So our older website is musewest.wordpress.com. And our next concert is in six days on Saturday, November 28th at 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. New York Eastern Time, and... 10 in the morning in Seoul, Korea. The musician is a Korean pianist, so um, we arrange the time a little bit differently. And that will be coming up, and we are featuring the conductor of the Vancouver Opera with two wonderful singers on Saturday, January 30th at 7.30 p.m. Pacific. Uh, please stay tuned for whether an audience will be allowed. Uh, Dr. Bonnie Henry will keep us up to date every day at 3 p.m., as always. And um, we're really amping up our interviews and our podcasts. So um, the one I'm most excited about is entirely in French. I'm so pumped. And that is on Sunday, December 6th at 12.30 p.m. noon in Vancouver, 9.30 p.m. in Paris. And it is with World renowned um, harpsichordist Pierre Antailly. It will be completely in French with subtitles. And I'm looking forward to that. And we have a few other interviews that people can see on our Facebook Live. And we hope that people will join us for those virtual concerts. Awesome. One last thing. Um, what's, what's the name of your podcast? Our podcast is called Take Note. And it is edited by the fantastic Joshua Daniel Short. And he's going to be really happy I used his full name. <laughs> so you can find our podcast on Apple and Spotify and Anchor. Thanks so much for joining us once again.
Thank you for the invitation. It was lovely to speak with you both. Thanks for joining us in this episode of Stop Scrolling. If you like what you hear, consider following us on Facebook and your favorite podcast listening platform for updates and our newest episodes. If you're interested in giving us feedback, coming onto our show, or have any questions, feel free to reach out to us on Facebook or via email at stopscrolling.podcast at gmail.com. On the next episode of Stop Scrolling, we look at the spread of misinformation in the digital age. Specifically, we look at a project aimed at fighting against COVID-19 misinformation. As always, thank you for tuning in to our podcast and talk to you guys in two weeks. <laughs>